This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Collins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy. This week, dazzling dragonflies, a killing jar, and Amanda Bell at home in her garden on iridescence, poison, and collections. What's the earliest photograph you have of yourself? What does it say about who you will become or were already? There's a painting of a small girl, aged around six or seven. She appears like a wood sprite, a white dress tied with a ribbon just below her chest. She has auburn curls and a rosy face. She leans against a branch with her bare feet crossed one over the other. In her left hand, lying across her body, she holds a butterfly net. The net is just a prop taken up by the child at the last minute in the artist's studio. But this prop symbolises a destiny for this young girl, Cynthia Longfield. Known eventually as Madame Dragonfly, she becomes the world's most important authority on dragonflies. That child wanders the fields and gardens around her family home, Castle Mary in Cloyne in Cork. She visits the coastline, studying shells, birds, flowers and anything that moves, really. Anything that lives. She's curious, a watcher, a collector, and destined to become one of Ireland's great naturalists. But above all creatures, it's the dragonfly that dazzles her. Their wings catch the light under the ash trees of Castle Mary, in the ponds and streams nearby. She chases them hopes to catch them, to observe their iridescence, to study, if only to hold them and raise them on her hand to her eye level and really understand. Dragonflies are one of the fastest insects, flying up to 40 miles per hour. They sometimes even fly upside down, but only when they need to catch an agile prey. They eat gnats and mosquitoes. A dragonfly has four wings and each one contains many veins. The dragonfly's heart pumps blood to each wing to power flight. They can fly in any direction, including backwards. Dragonflies fly left, right, up and down. They can also hover in the air like helicopters. Naiads, baby dragonflies, are aquatic. They spend up to a year submerged in water before taking flight. Their aeronautics would and do inspire any drone maker today. Certain females can play dead to dupe stalking males. The male loses interest, leaves and she escapes. Cynthia's childhood sounds idyllic and it must have been. She was, after all, from a wealthy family. She called a castle her home. But not everyone agreed and the family home was burnt down in the 1920s during the War of Independence. Her path now less sure, Cynthia was determined not to restrict her life to that expected of women in the early 20th century. She was pegged as a society girl and expected to play the part. She did not want to play the part. Cynthia Longfield wanted to do something of consequence. But even for a woman with financial independence, this was a time when any meaningful independence was frowned upon socially. The study of butterflies, or damselflies, or dragonflies, even with all their astonishing agility, might not seem like much. But this woman, this person, stands before all others when it comes to knowledge of the species. 
She moves to London and after the First World War, answers an advert to set sail with entomologist Evelyn Cheeseman on a research trip to the South Pacific. There are 456 photographs in Cynthia's own album in the Royal Irish Academy that document this trip. On the front, St George to the South Sea Islands, 1924 to 1925. 456 moments from the journey that would change her life. She departed on this expedition as an amateur and returned a professional. The first photograph is of a ship. The yacht is a thousand tons. Barquatine rigged with auxiliary steam and especially equipped with laboratory and dark rooms. On the journey, she wasn't called Cynthia, but Paddy, due to her Irish roots, and the photographs of her in this album bear that name. On board, she slept in a bunk with Evelyn Cheeseman. Cheeseman had the bottom, as she was more senior, but by the time they reached Trinidad, they'd both taken to sleeping on deck, in a tarpaulin arranged by the skipper. They visited places such as Indefatigable Island, Eden Island, James Island and the Disappointment Islands. Tapoto? The papers of the day like to report this voyage, emphasising the fact that Cynthia was an heiress, minimising her input. She was merely a companion to the other female passengers. But her own diaries note the work she did on board. I have a young grasshopper larvae, a large thing, Brilliant leaf green all over, with a reddish purple underside to her tummy. Her antennae are two and a half inches long, and her ovipositor is shaped like a curled leaf. I really took my share of the work. We got soaked through in a This few journey was crucial for her fieldwork and was the foundation of her scientific career. Writing up data, diary, and notes and pinning, sorting and classifying the insects. She quickly identified herself as an entomologist. I went on the St George expedition to follow Darwin's footsteps, and I got there. Reports on the trip also focused on the fact that, on board, she fell in love with her mentor, entomologist Cyril Colonnet. Readers might have wanted a love story, neatly tying up Cynthia's life in a bow. But she refused all proposals, She didn't want to return to a life as a wife of a brilliant man. She instead chose her own brilliant life, working in the British Museum, working unpaid due to her gender, working for 30 years unpaid, to keep studying and classifying and writing about insects and dragonflies. Cynthia was intrepid. She travelled to Asia, back to South America, drove solo through Africa, further than most men then or even now dare to go. Cynthia was a pioneer. She became the first female president of the London Natural History Society, the first woman elected to the Entomological Society's council. For the last decades of her life, she returned home to Cloyne. When she died at 94 years of age, just 20 years ago in 1991, she had written nine books, 32 scientific papers, described several new insect species and had a library containing more than 500 natural history books which are still housed in the Royal Irish Academy. But one of the treasures in the Academy that caught my eye, gifted by Cynthia, is a small glass jar, no bigger than a salt shaker. It has a cork stopper and is wrapped in a swatch of cloth. This small piece of fabric teased away from the sale of the St George. She wore this killing jar on her belt, 
and into it she collected hundreds of specimens during the trip of a lifetime. A trip that taught her about travel, science, the natural world. A trip that helped her to understand that she could choose. Cynthia Longfield has two dragonfly species named after her. Corfe Longfieldi, Agrionopter insignis Cynthiae. Cynthia Longfield is Madame Dragonfly. This week's guest on Shelf Marks is Amanda Bell. Amanda has written several books of poetry. In fact, this week sees the launch for her new collection, Riptide. For Shelf Marks, each guest writer has been invited to take a gentle prompt from the Royal Irish Academy collections. In this way, the RIA collections and members inspire new generations of writers to write about the natural world. This week, Amanda has written several pieces rooted in the natural world, Cynthia Longfield, collecting insects and display. Amanda invited me to spend time with her in her Mayo garden, a place she has been tending for more than 20 years. It's an old farmstead where she's been growing her own food and fruit. It's bound by other farms, a road and the Spada River. We're just going in under the bridge that goes um, over the Spada River. It's a very small, almost an imperceptible bridge when you're driving along the road. When you're down here beneath it. It's a really nice stone-built bridge. Lovely arch. This little plinth is covered in moss. We just crossed from one side of the road to the other underneath the bridge. It's a feeder stream that joins the moy at the end of the road. So you can see small trout and salmon fry. And it's quite a good place for watching dippers and occasionally kingfishers. So it's a little spawning stream. Yeah. What about insects? Good insect life. Um, we have had dragonflies, dark green ones, a lot of horseflies. People bring their animals down here to drink, so the horseflies will tend to be attracted to them. Moths are better this year, I think, than they've been in years, actually. Ermine ermine moths particularly and then all there's so much ragweed around the place we get a lot of the black black and yellow cinnabar moths just behind me here uh, well i can hear dogs barking i can hear cattle i can hear insects you've spoken to me before about you have difficulties hearing what what do you hear and how does it affect how you understand and appreciate and observe nature yeah it's a good question i think having hearing impairment is very isolating and you tend to live in your own head quite a lot and that's maybe not a bad thing for a writer um but i do think i have to for me listening is very active i can't passively listen and i can't kind of multitask i can't listen when i'm doing something else i suppose i i think i don't hear the same thing as other people because there's certain registers that i don't get and i was really afraid that i would lose things like bird song but so far I haven't um, because the register seems to work and I can hear you know what you're hearing I can hear the the cattle I can hear the dogs I can hear the chickens I mean we have a pheasant who patrols the site like a 
Like going around the face of a clock, he obviously has several families and I can always sort of chart his progress around the site. So I think I would normally tend to process sounds coming from different directions and which sounds are meaningful and which aren't. That's interesting that you, you, you filter what is meaningful. I think that's a really interesting way to put it. So you're parsing things as you go. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Which is probably not a very good tendency because I'm also an editor and you do tend to um, possibly over-edit people. <laughs> I don't mean on paper, I mean just generally. <laughs> as they're talking. <laughs> Stop saying that. <laughs> Uh, well, this was the the original living area of the the cottage. This is quite a small room, but it was like our our living and dining and kitchen and everything else. Oh, yeah, and just over here on the wall, I have an old compositor's tray. Um, my grandfather was a printer, so there were a few bits and bobs hanging around, and we've just collected bits from around the site. Also, some. Uh, print blocks of a lot of full stops there and exclamation marks teeth clay pipes which we dug up in the garden bits of lichen um, some old coins this tiny apple core which is rather beautiful sort of shrunken into nothing it's like a little fossil and um there are actually amazing fossils around here. It would, would have been a um, coral bed at one stage, which I find quite um, humbling that you're worried about. Is the hedge getting overgrown? And then you realise that this used to be at the bottom of an ocean and the evidence is right there in front of you. It puts things in perspective for you. Tell me about your own attitude towards collecting. Are you like a magpie? Totally, totally like a magpie. There, it's an Ed memoir as well that it's like looking through photographs. And when I think of somebody like Cynthia Longfield, who spent her entire life collecting different insects and you know, dragonflies and butterflies and odd creatures, it gives, you, it gives me a huge respect for somebody who's dedicated their whole life to yeah. collecting. Yeah, no, I, I think that's extraordinary and what the huge contribution to human knowledge that she, she made. And what I think it's very striking about her is um, I don't think she had any formal education and yet she has made such an impact as a scholar and a researcher and that's something for you know women in particular had to do that they weren't didn't necessarily have the benefit of a third level education now, a lot of a lot of 19th and 20th century women scientists and there were quite a few a lot of them would have come up through academies but she didn't and um, would have even more admiration for her that she was sort of driven by her own interests. Well, I suppose it has to be said that she had the luxury of being able to work for, you know, 30 years in the Natural History Museum for no money, I know, I know. which is, is not something that's available to all of us. But I, I guess at least she did something positive and progressive with her time. Collecting. My cabinet of curiosities is a mixed bag. From the delicate seed heads of umbellifers to clay pipe fragments, oak galls to eggshells, tiny shriveled apple cores to blown glass marbles, tufts of lichen to clots of tree resin, the inner workings of long abandoned clocks to the translucent skulls of birds and rodents. It is not in fact a cabinet, but a compositor's tray, 
Nonetheless, it is a microcosm of every collection ever assembled. Collecting is among our most basic impulses. Once we are fed and clad, we accumulate. One of the first things a toddler will do is amass things. Leaves, sticks, snail shells, stones. Why? For the pleasure of discovery, the logic of grouping things, the knowledge gleaned by close observation. Little wonder that toy companies and fast food chains mass-produce collectibles to feed and profit from such a deep and innate desire. Even if it begins with the urge to gather things for their own sake, at some point an accumulation becomes a collection, a way to make sense of the world, to fill in the gaps, to create a narrative of what is or what might be. Selection and juxtaposition are powerful editorial tools in curating even the smallest, most informal collection. For a third-party viewer or researcher, context is everything. What a difference it makes to know whether the objects were chosen for their perfection or their imperfection, because they are rare or typical, whether they are arranged according to where they were found or by date or colour. If I display a rat's skull next to a broken robin's egg, Am I implying a causal relationship? For some, the choice to display a rat skull in a domestic situation may in itself be problematic. Even rats themselves amass collections. But for some of us, collecting is simply a way to document our lives. A diary of tangible objects, each one a portal to a moment in time, a focal point for sense memory. Tiny flat pebbles no bigger than a baby's fingernail, collected on Greystone's beach, conjure the sound of the waves curling onto the shore. The desiccated shards of by-the-wind sailors recreate the scent of the macker at Mulrani. Each saved object represents an epiphany, a moment of intense noticing, a oneness with our surroundings. In this way, each one is a haiku. For me, collecting is an Ed memoir, a concrete diary of ephemera, Objects which fall into step with me for a while, before they gradually lose their significance. The anima that forge that moment of recognition and connection, and they crumble into dust. A celebration of impermanence. So the idea is that everything on the site is really edible, so that, that whole hedge at the back is an edible hedge. You can see the apples just about peeking out. And what sort of apples are these? They're small eaters. It's very erratic. One year you might have a bumper crop. We had an amazing crop a couple of years ago and there are rooks, which I just love, um, nesting all over the place. And they came down like a plague of locusts and they were hanging upside down off the tree, drilling a hole. I literally drilled a hole in every single apple on the tree. <laughs> it was priceless. I videoed them. It was really extremely amusing. That's just so, that's just so unfair. They can't just eat an entire one. They, they Literally every one of them. And then these are, there was an old apple tree which is a couple of hundred years old and it had the most beautiful umbiliferous shape and it was like something out of a fairy story and that unfortunately split in half during Storm Eleanor which we were just heartbroken about. But my husband took cuttings of that and sent them to seed savers in Scarf and they grafted them. They're like a very distinctive sort of cylindrical shaped apple. They're quite dry. The original, I mean it is, an, it is a pretty old heritage variety but they didn't have a name for it so it's now called the old castle bell no so yeah. you have an apple called after this area yeah. and you yeah, i'm feeling very left out here cynthia longfield is two dragonflies and you have an apple it's amazing yeah it is <laughs> very cool actually <laughs>
So everything in the garden, you've planted it with the idea uh, that you can eat it um, and be in some way self-sufficient. As a writer, then, what does it give you to tend this ground? I never sit down to a blank page, ever. I've worked it out in my head before I commit it to paper. So I tend to work things out by doing things. So that could be just pottering around or weeding or restoring things. So it affords you that type of space and you're not really interrupted by anything. We don't have a television. I never listen to anything except what's going on around me. So I would never listen to the radio or a podcast or anything when I'm doing something. So it's quite monastic, actually. Amanda, one of the pieces that you've written for Shelf Marks is about poison. And for anyone who has been involved in studying insects over the past couple of centuries, they would have had to kill them, including Cynthia Longfield. Uh, you mentioned um, that her killing jar is in the collection in the Academy. So that brought me straight into poison. Yeah, and to us now it might seem quite morbid or just of its time. Well, I think that idea of Victorian displays, taxidermy, glass domes, the idea of having dead things on display, I think, is strange to our perception now in the days of photography and 3D printing, um, particularly photography and filmmaking, I suppose, and that you still see so much of it and that people still practice taxidermy, I do find peculiar. But again, I'm always quite disturbed if you go into a hardware shop or something, just shelves and shelves and shelves of things designed to kill things, be it plants or animals or insects. And I found, I found it very discordant. Poison. How the 20th century embraced it. In warfare, in agriculture, in the garden and in the home. In those days before childproof locks, the cupboard under the kitchen sink was an arsenal, packed with small red pellets to kill rodents. Tubs of ant powder, mothballs, fly spray, slug bait. It smelt like the local hardware shop. That unmistakable bouquet of solvents, lacquer, dust and death. The hardware shop was where my uncle acquired formaldehyde. He wanted to preserve grasshoppers. On a fine day, if you stood still and listened hard, you could trap them on the lake shore. Small, khaki-coloured insects who lived at the base of grass tufts. They betrayed themselves with their high-pitched sound, a call which was not a call, but a stridulation made as they basked in the sun, rubbing the little pegs on their hind legs against their wings. Hold your breath, stalk, pounce. Then slide them into a matchbox, ready for a day on the lake. But there must be something bigger, better, like the bush crickets living on the foothills. These were twice the size, louder and bright green surely more attracted to trout. It wouldn't be convenient to go up the mountain on your way to the lake, but what if you could preserve them and have a ready supply? No one questioned the advisability of having a known toxin in a jar on the living room table, where the macabre process took place, or why a fish should choose a mummified insect over a living nymph. No one asked whether it would be advisable to eat a fish that had ingested formaldehyde. Innocent days indeed. For me, it was the first inkling of our complex interactions with the insect world and of the conundrum that annihilation has so often been carried out in the name of preservation. 
In any case, formaldehyde is not an appropriate solution to preserve insects. The tissues become hardened and difficult to handle. What you need is a mixture of ethanol and water, with the concentration varying according to the insect. There are exceptions. Adult bees should not be preserved in alcohol, as it mats their fluffy body hair. Insect larvae should be boiled to fix their proteins. For larger specimens, including Odonata, Lepidoptera, Neuroptera and Trichoptera, papering is suitable. This entails placing the insects in small envelopes of glassine paper with their wings folded together along their backs. The order of Odonata, or toothed ones, includes dragonflies and damselflies. Adult wingspans range from 17 millimetres to 20 centimetres, so in permanent collections, filing Odonata by papering rather than pinning is a much more efficient use of space. Everything has got just so overgrown in, in two years of lockdown. The most obvious thing in right here in the middle of your garden is what happened here? <laughs> oh, my poor tree. This is a stand of five beech trees. You know, they're probably at least 200 years old. I've been keeping a very careful eye on them, but they do tend to, to drop limbs when they get to a certain um, point of maturity. So this tree dropped a couple of limbs in the last 15 years. In the wound, a disease called, called brittle cinder, which basically, it sort of attacks, my understanding is that it attacks the cellulose in the tree, so it makes it completely brittle. And it happens from the inside out, so you, there's nothing to see until it basically falls down. And when it's a tree that size, you know, we were told it would knock the house down. So it all happened rather suddenly and it had to be taken down last month. And I was here on my own and it was actually the most shocking thing I've ever seen happening I think the violence of the noise and you it just acoustically it was it was absolutely shocking the whole house shook as it hit the ground it was it was extraordinary so we left a 20 foot trunk which still has that beautiful silver bark you can see and there's you know the the remaining stump that's in the ground is like a totem in the garden yeah, isn't it yeah it is yeah with brittle cinder, you can't see it happening. Uh, the tree there that's half up, half down, and really in it, fully gone. Um, it's a it's a cipher for where we're at, isn't it? I mean, once it's gone and it's not coming back. I don't mean this to sound negative, but it probably does. But I actually think of it as being quite positive. Is that it just brings home to you the complete um, futility of human endeavour, and I think that's great. Um, just to be constantly reminded of your own how minute and insignificant you are I think is kind of great actually and I don't think it's gone because I've yeah, processed the shock of seeing it coming down and I'm kind of interested in seeing what's going to happen next and even in the last couple of weeks during that intense heat wave the trunk on the ground started seeping bright red sap um, which I've never seen before. I think it was just because it was so incredibly hot. It was about 31 degrees here. And it was like it was bleeding. Um, it was amazing. That's all gone now. And the bark is starting to peel away. Brittle cinder. I'm tired of elegies and grief, of metaphors and poems about trees. Yet watching this ancient beach being dismantled piece by piece, I wonder is this how a body falls, breath-catching swoop, Harsh crash, 
and trembling settle. It blocked the horizon, I concede, and now light floods dry shady soil, where soon long dormant seeds will thrive. But lost the roar of chainsaws, or soft leaves that stroked my face. I weep in a timber boneyard, among piles of fresh-chipped brash. The final piece that you've written for Shelf Marks, Amanda, is about iridescence and insect wings, butterfly wings, and a piece of jewellery. Well, I was thinking of, of the colours of dragonflies, the blues and greens. Um, I started reading up a bit about iridescence. And because of the, the period during which Cynthia Longfield was working, I suppose I was thinking of the Victorians and their view of insects, their view of colour. Um, and the, the strong etiquette that I think they, they had such a, a subtle and nuanced approach to how they used colour and texture. I, I wanted to explore that a little bit and then of course I thought about the, the, the piece of jewellery that I have from that era and how it always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. In much the same way as if you had a vintage fur coat that you'd got from your granny or picked up in a charity shop or something it still feels I to me a little bit strange but on the other hand why waste something that's already been done iridescence my butterfly wing pendant is the blue of a sunlit lagoon sheer and rippled as shot silk it belonged to my great-grandmother who was born in the late 1800s we tend to view the Victorians through a prism of industrial smog and black cloth, but they loved colour. More than that, they had a nuanced appreciation of texture and luminosity. Consider the complex etiquette of mourning clothes. Deepest black was prescribed for the first phase of mourning, but the material mattered too. It had to be dull and non-reflective. Paramata silk or bombazine, trimmed with scratchy crepe. As the morning period went on, colours seeped back in, to grey, then mauve, and finally white, symbolising the return of light. While morning, the only acceptable jewellery was hard black jet. But at other times, they revelled in brilliant colour and sought inspiration in the natural world, incorporating peacock feathers, the bodies of beetles, and the wings of moths and butterflies in their designs. The craze for butterfly wing jewellery continued from the late 1800s through to the 1960s and it is still produced today from butterfly farms where, unlike their predecessors, specimens die a natural death. The most popular wing has always been that of the blue morpho. A native of the South American rainforest, it is one of the largest butterflies in the world. One wing alone could produce multiple pendants or brooches. The shimmering iridescence across a spectrum of intense blues is structural, created not by pigment, but by optical effect. Moths and butterflies belong to the order of Lepidoptera, which in Greek means scaly wings. It is these tiny scales that appear to the human gaze as dust. They have a role in temperature regulation and also create interference in the way light is reflected. Iridescence is a protective mechanism as light hits the wing, the colour changes, so a butterfly in flight appears to predators to disappear and reappear a little further off. It is only important for the upper wing, which is what a bird will see from above. The closest humans have come to creating iridescence is the hologram, and we have long sought it out in nature for our own adornment. 
peacock feathers, insect wings, fish scales, mother of pearl. At one time during the 1880s, there was a fad for live beetles encrusted with jewels worn pinned to lapels in little gold cages. Even at the time, it was considered distasteful. And today, each time I reach for my pendant, hold it up by its fine silver chain and watch its blueness shimmer, I hesitate to put it on. Part of a once living thing, it inhabits an uneasy space between decoration and totem. But what does it revert to in the darkness of a drawer where there's no light to refract? Thanks to Amanda Bell for inviting us into her garden and sharing her words on iridescence, poison and collecting. Amanda's new collection, Riptide, is just out this week and is published by Dira Press. For this week's shelf mark on Cynthia Longfield, I read Cynthia's own diaries housed in the Royal Irish Academy, as well as looking at hundreds of photographs from her own album. I also read her great niece's biography, Madame Dragonfly, the Life and Times of Cynthia Longfield by Jane Hayter Haynes. Also useful was a paper by Angela Byrne, Constructing the Global Irish Woman Traveller, Cynthia Longfield's Scientific Researches in South America, 1921-27. And of course, I also read Cynthia's own masterwork, The Dragonflies of the British Isles, published in 1938. Thanks to the Arts Council Literature Project Award for funding this podcast and to the Royal Irish Academy.